Hi, friends. This episode of the Pod and Order podcast is brought to you by... Kesava. Kesava creates frozen, naturally gluten-free foods with simple, wholesome, minimally processed ingredients and has its own line of 100% vegan, ready-to-eat dishes. This episode is also brought to you by Tempe. Tempe crafts unpasteurized tempeh using organic, non-GMO soybeans and is created fresh from the, for the boldest taste and texture. You can find Tempe's well-loved tempeh across various retailers in the greater Vancouver area. And finally, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at The Grinning Goat. We hope you enjoy the episode. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everyone. It's your co-host, Camille Labchek, joined by Peter Sankoff today for episode 50 of Paw and Order. Hey, Peter. 50, Camille. Where did the time go? Like, how does it happen? 50. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Some, someday we'll be talking about, how is it 500? Is this our golden episode, Camille? It's our golden episode, isn't it? Does that mean you have to buy me a present? I, <laughs> I think you have to buy <laughs> me a present. <laughs> As the executive How about neither of director. us gets any gifts and that just cancels oh, itself Oh, all right. But we do have a gift, Camille, because amazingly, episode 50, as you have already heard, comes with exciting news for us. New sponsors. Huge welcome to our new sponsors, Tempe and Cassava. We are overjoyed. And let me just say, first of all, thank you to these new sponsors because you help us keep doing what we're doing. And that is uh, the best part of this. Um, I will take my healthy commission, Camille, on these sponsorships, which as you know, right now stands at a healthy 0% of all revenues from Paw and Order. Well, perhaps soon you can add a taste of some dumplings that, to that list. That is true. <laughs> I can't, I can no longer say that I am getting nothing out of Paw & Order because I actually have in my, well, not in my hands because it's at home, but I actually have coupons for free samples of cassava dumplings. And I've tried them before, but now I'm really going to sit down and do a taste test. Like really, I've eaten them before, I've liked them, and now I'm going to really decide which my favorite is, Camille. I'm very excited about it. Well, I'm, I'm excited for you. It's pretty cool. We're, we're really happy to have new sponsors and keep the podcast on the air and uh, help us grow. So, so thanks for uh, supporting these companies. Anything that keeps me talking to you on a regular basis, Camille, has to be a good thing. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
things have been busy as usual, and we made a really exciting announcement this week that I'm, I'm happy to share as well on the podcast too. So we mentioned previously that tickets for our gala were going on sale. We're having a gala April 25th at the Palais Royal in Toronto. It's going to be a super, super fun night. And we've just announced that we have a pretty cool performer coming to entertain us all at this event, Chantal Kraviachuk. Oh, sorry, Camille, for a second there, I thought you were going to mention me as the pawn or co-host. No, sorry, you're right, Chantal Kravazia. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think she might be a bigger draw than you, but... Probably, you know, probably. May, maybe yeah. I'm wrong about that. Say more about that, Anyway, Camille, I'm, I'm sorry. I've always been a fan of hers ever since, you know, high school, junior high school. She's been performing since, uh, since back then, for sure. And it's going to be really cool to have her uh, present. She's actually uh, someone who is super keen on animal issues. She is vegan. Uh, her partner is vegan. And they're, they're vegan out of uh, partial concern for the protection of animals. So fits really well with the theme of the gala, which is illumination. And it's going to be a bright night with awesome people and some really cool music. So check out animaljusticegala.ca for more information and including to buy tickets or VIP tickets. Now, Camille, again, you buried the lead, and I appreciate that on Facebook I get an eye roll, but on my own podcast that I share with you, can you at least not advertise the fact that the Paw and Order team is going to be together as well? Like, you know, on our podcast, Camille, is that too much to ask? Okay, okay, all right. And as an added draw, if you see Peter and you mention Paw and Order, he's going to make a $1,000 donation to Animal Justice, right? <laughs> yeah, first of all... <laughs> Not just Peter. Now you're now you're again. This is like the equivalent of a voice eye roll because it's not just Peter. The whole team will be together. Camille, our producer Shannon Milling, Camille, of course, Labchuck, who will be you know flitting everywhere, speaking with all the people in her I don't know other role as executive director of Animal Justice, as if that <laughs> matters. But the Pawn Order team will be together. We will definitely get a Pawn Order photo, whether Camille likes it or not. And of course, we're hoping to meet some of our listeners, Camille. That's important too. So of please buy tickets. So I... Buy tickets so we can see you there. Yeah, yeah. Come hang out with us. It's going to be super cool. There's going to be an open bar, which I know is appealing to a lot of people. But there will be non-alcoholic beverages as well at this open bar of booze isn't your jam. There's going to be a silent auction, uh, amazing plant-based food catered by the one and only Doug McNish, Toronto's wow. premier vegan chef. Not not just vegan chef, but he was actually voted by Now Magazine readers, the best chef in Toronto. So really awesome that Doug is curating our amazing plant-based menu. And it's just going to be overall an amazing evening. Our last one was super, super fun. This one, we're trying to take it to the next level. So uh, check it out and buy a ticket. Now, Peter... It's not just the gala. That's not the only event that we have on the go. Yes, I know. We've there also are, got the... There are many. There are and lots one of, of those, events. I thought you were talking about something else, but I think you're talking about the Canadian Animal Law Conference, aren't you? I am. I am. So the Canadian Animal Law Conference is coming up September 11th to 13th in Toronto. And the reason we're talking about it now is that the call for submissions is currently open. Uh, for another couple weeks. So I think it closes on uh, March 13th. So if you are interested in presenting, please get your submission in. We're really looking forward to hearing from just an amazing group of people working on animal law issues uh, from a legal perspective or perhaps from another perspective. You don't have to be a lawyer to take part in this conference, either to present or to attend. Lots of lawyers, but lots of non-lawyers to show up to this. So check out CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca to learn how to submit. 
Yes, absolutely. I thought you were talking about something else because I just realized, I, I didn't just realize, but I've always known um, that that April 25th is going to be big for me. I've got another party two days before a book launch, which I don't need to talk about now because that's what's happening with me right now, Camille. I have a book launch coming up this Friday in Edmonton. I'm very excited. It's going to be just really great to have a lot of friends and supporters together. And there's nothing, as you remember, there's nothing quite like signing a few books to really just put a little, you know, extra air in your tires that day. <laughs> uh, well, good for you. And why don't you tell our listeners what your book is about? My new book has come out. If you follow me on Twitter, you already know this. It's called The Law of Witnesses and Evidence in Canada. It follows one of my other passions, which is the law of evidence. It's two binders full, chock full of goodness, Camille. It's a massive uh, book. It's <laughs> it's massively priced as well, though my book launch customers will get 15% off if they attend the book launch, which is really nice. Uh, thanks to my publisher for doing that. But I'm just excited. It's always nice to have a book launch. You get a chance to really bring a lot of people together. And uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. So I'm excited. I'm excited to do it in Toronto. I haven't had a book launch um, in Toronto on a criminal law topic. I've done my animal law book, of course, with you, Camille, uh, about five years ago. But I have never done a criminal law book launch in Toronto. So I'm excited to do that. Well, I'm excited for it, too. That's, yeah, a nice way to kind of lead into the gala. Seriously, it's um, going to be a weekend of, full of partying, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and now speaking of events coming up, I realize there's another one I should mention to folks. On Friday, March 20th in Toronto, there's a panel on feminism and animal rights spoken from a legal perspective. Uh, so it's from 2 to 4 p.m. at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. That's 78 Queen's Park Crescent. I'll post a link to this in the show notes. Uh, but it's a panel on the intersection of feminism and animal rights. We've got some pretty cool presenters. There's your colleague, Peter Jessica Eisen, who mm -hmm. teaches with you at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. And Jessica researches animal issues and anti-discrimination, feminist legal theory, and all kinds of uh, issues that relate really well to this topic. There's Andrea Freeman from the University of Hawaii School of Law, who's going to be writing or speaking about critical race theory and food policy. And Angela Lee, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa, and she's also a fellow at the Schulich School of Law in uh, Halifax at Dalhousie. So uh, show up if you're interested in hearing more, but it promises to be a pretty cool event. I, I got to be honest, the way Schulich is rolling off your tongue these days, it's just making it hard for me to make fun of you, Camille. It's fantastic. I know. When, when I said it, I was like, wow, did I actually just it's get just, this right? I think I did. It just flowed right out. It was fantastic. It's like it was the like, first time. Schulich. Woo. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I remember. I remember. I, I remember way back when it was like the Schulich Schul. Schoolage. Those were good days. Yeah. Um, those were those were fine days. Yeah, fantastic. That sounds like a, a really uh, great event. I'm sorry, I'm going to miss it. Yeah, and, and I should mention as well, it's hosted by the Animal Law Clubs at uh, the Animal Justice Association Clubs, rather at the University of Toronto and Osgoode Hall, and uh, with some support as well from the Brooks Institute. So, looking forward to it. We should All also right. mention, yeah. wait, before you're going to get inside, but we should mention something else we did last week. We almost forgot that we were sort of together last week, um, although by, again, the magical power of the internet, uh, when Camille did a guest lecture in my class on animals and the law, and it was really a, a, a great show. I think the students really enjoyed hearing from Camille, who spoke about farm animals and the way in which they're treated in Canada. Yeah, which, uh, spoiler alert, is not very good. 
and the legal system does not protect them. I think you so like the way I would too depressing. I think you enjoyed the way I would set you up. It was sort of like a paw and order podcast, you know, when I was doing like those fake questions, you know. But wait a minute, Camille. Don't they have yeah. lots of vibrant protections in place? You know, stuff like that. It was pretty funny. I thought we had a good time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was super fun. All right. Well, folks, it's your uh Constant reminder to please leave us a review if you enjoy listening to the podcast. You can do so on uh, your favorite podcatcher. And specifically, if you do an Apple podcast, you can add to our 100 plus five star reviews. I'm just going to read out one review from a fellow podcaster, actually. It's from Uh, the Now You Know podcast. Always nice. So nice. So the, the title is informative, smart, and so necessary. I love tuning in to hear Camille and Peter, not only because I learn a tremendous amount each time, but also because it's just a pleasure to be part of their conversations. Thank you for all you do to help animals, Canadians, and people the world over. From Catherine and the Now You Know podcast team. So thank you so much, Catherine. That's really kind of you. If you don't know Catherine's podcast already, I suggest checking it out. It's Now You Know. Maybe we can leave a a link to it in the show notes. But they go in-depth on all kinds of animal issues, uh, including many animal law issues. And I actually was on just the other week talking about egg gag on the Now You Know podcast. So uh, lots of information there, too. They interview people who've got expertise in different areas, so it's a bit of a different format from ours. So if you're interested in broadening your horizons, check them out. Far be it for me, Camille, to critique um, somebody who wrote us a review, but I I think they got it wrong. I think they meant to say I love tuning in to hear the award-winning Camille. I think that was just missing somehow from the review. Um, Must have been a typo. While we're talking about podcasts, can I also very quickly... um, um, you know, highlight a podcast. This is an interesting podcast. It has very little to do with animals usually, but uh, this podcast is run by my brother, Jeff Sankoff, and he runs a podcast called the Tri Doc Podcast. And the reason I want to alert that is because I was recently a guest on his podcast um, talking about the film Game Changers. And he wanted to do, it's a very interesting series, by the way. I, I urge you to take a look at it, even if you're not interested. His, his podcast is about triathlon training generally. But he did like a four-part series on the film Game Changers because my brother is also a a, a physician. And he looked at all the claims that were made in the movie from different perspectives. So he looked at the health claims and the uh, training gains claims. And he brought on a series of experts. And I was brought on to examine the claims relating to veganism um, and the way it affects agriculture and, you know, issues about factory farming that are raised at the very end of the film. So it's a really interesting series on the film Game changers and uh, I urge you to check it out if you're interested oh neat neat no you're branching out into the sports world Peter I love to see it I'm you know I'm a podcast bigamist Camille I'll go anywhere they'll have me <laughs> let's not forget okay. while you were talking about things that you can do for us because really it's about things you can do for us no I'm just kidding but we we do love nothing more than our uh, patreon supporters and we have we do have new Patreon supporters, don't we, Camille? We do. I so know. thanks for two recent Patreon supporters, Tess. Thank you, Tess. And here's my favorite one, Hippo the Adventure Doodle. We've got support from a really cool dog. I thanks, have Hippo. always, always wanted to be supported by a dog. It's, it's honestly, Camille, let's be frank about it. This is a positive mood towards animal rights. When dogs are supporting us on Patreon, that's got to be a sign of legal status. Hippo the Adventure hey, Doodle, way to go. Hippo knows who's, who's standing up for his rights. That's right. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. We, we really couldn't do this without so many amazing supporters. And we're, we're just glad that uh, you're happy to keep supporting us and supporting the show. Believe me, Camille, as you know, there are times during the year when getting ramped up to do the show is more challenging than other times of the year. Um, hint, this is one of those times. But uh, I'll tell you, when I see what our supporters are doing and all these new spo- uh, podcast uh, sponsors, it's hard to not want to get going and really deliver the best show possible. So we can't thank you enough for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. So visit patreon.com slash order to lend your support for as little as a dollar a month. All right, Peter, on to the news section. Yeah, this is a, a, a great story in a way. So Miyoko's Creamery has filed a lawsuit against the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Uh, Now, Miyoko's. Who's Miyoko's? Well, if you live in the States, you know that Miyoko's makes amazing cashew-based cheeses. And if you live in Canada, you've probably heard of Miyoko's because everybody talks about buying Miyoko's when they go to the States. Um, Cough, cough. That's all I do is like I go to Whole Foods and buy like eight wheels of Miyoko's cheese and bring them across in my suitcase. And the border guards are always like, What's that? Cashew <laughs> cheese? Okay. Are they not available so, at all in Canada, Camille? I, I wasn't aware. Well, now they now they're starting to be available, but for years they weren't, so it was a it was a huge problem for me. They also sell a vegan butter in Canada, and that's one of the issues that kind of came up that the, they filed this lawsuit over. So officials in California's milk and dairy food safety branch sent a letter to Miyoko's complaining about phrases that they use in marketing their vegan products, like, quote, 100% cruelty and animal-free, end quote, the use of the word butter in the phrase vegan plant butter to wait, describe their wait, butter product. Camille, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. V- vegan, vegan plant butter? I'm confused. Is that butter? Or is it is it like butter that you mix with plants? Or is it what what's going on here? I'm I'm deeply confused. Yeah, that that's a little bit of sarcasm because I'm pretty sure nobody reading that would be confused. Oh, vegan that's plant vegan. butter. Oh, sorry, vegan plant butter. I thought it was some kind of weird hybrid. I you know I don't know. It's got the word butter in it, Camille. I'm deeply confused. I know, I know. So difficult. That's what's going on. We've had these labeling issues before on this show many times, like pretty darn confusing. Even an image of a woman hugging a cow is problematic? Hmm. That's what they're saying. They say that's an image of animal agriculture. And they also say the company can't claim that Miyoko's is revolutionizing dairy with plants because the products do not contain milk or milk ingredients. So, wow, it's just more of the same. Uh, what the, the, so they filed a legal complaint. The legal complaint is a First Amendment case, which is a free speech case in the States. And they're looking for an injunction to try to stop the state from enforcing the laws against them in the manner set forth in the letter that they sent. Because Miyoko's doesn't believe that they're offside with the law at all. Um, they note that even the USDA uses some of the terms that they use in, the, in their in their marketing products. And they're also concerned that industry lobbyists from the dairy industry, who are trying really hard to ban plant-based companies from doing different things, especially from using dairy terminology, they feel that these people have struck out at the federal level. The USDA is not responsive to them. So they're shifting now to the state level. And that's why perhaps they're getting this letter at this point in time. And Peter, the cool thing about this issue, and we'll post a copy of the complaint so you can read it, because it's really well done, and kind of has an undertone of, of um, 
a little bit of amusement to the situation because it's just so absurd in, in a way that the state's trying to stop them from accurately describing their, their products. So it's a really well-drafted complaint. And the Animal Legal Defense Fund is representing Miyoko's. But Peter Miyoko's is expanding rapidly. They, they are like doubling in size every year. They are trying to become essentially the beyond meat or the impossible foods version of the dairy industry, which is awesome. So for them, it would cost over a million dollars to change all of their labels and marketing, and it would prevent the company from accurately communicating to the public about the products that it creates, which are all vegan and are cruelty-free and are animal-free. So I am looking forward to seeing how this turns out. Uh, hopefully this will be enough to stop the state from trying to do something more. Well, it's an interesting case. We've talked about this sort of thing many times before, and I'm a huge fan. I, I love the idea of being proactive about it um, and, and really going after these ideas that you can't ban this. Certainly when you can do that on a constitutional basis, um, there needs to be restrictions. I think those restrictions need to be justified. Uh, it seems to me that the same sort of case could theoretically be run in Canada. Uh, it's not It's not necessarily going to be an easy case because of the ability to balance limitations on the freedom of expression. But I think you could argue that it would at the very least um, force the government to prove that there's actually some need for these types of restrictions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And I have no doubt we're going to see a lot more of this stuff in Canada. We already have seen it to some extent, and I'm sure that's not the end of it because we all know that the dairy lobby has a lot of marketing money and a lot of lobbying funds. So rest assured, they are working on this issue in Canada too. Cool. What's up next? All right. So our next story is kind of an interesting piece that I read last week. It's about uh, the Order of Ontario, which is equivalent of the Order of Canada, but in the province of Ontario. It was given last week to somebody who's deeply involved in the fur industry, a guy named Neil Jotham. Uh, he's also one of the founders of the Fur Institute Canada of, of Canada, and he's led so-called humane trapping efforts. So the, the blurb on the government's website says, a renowned animal welfare advocate, he's worked tirelessly to improve the lives of millions of animals and many animal use industries across Canada and worldwide. And he was a driving force behind advancing science and protocols to establish an international agreement on humane trapping standards. So the reason I wanted to chat a little bit about this, Peter, is because I find it troubling in some ways. So somebody like... Neil Jotham, I think, has a bit of a mixed legacy. I do accept that he's somebody who, for decades, did uh, try to improve trapping standards. But what I worry about is those efforts, instead of undermining trapping and undermining the industry and leading to protecting animals better, I worry that they've provided more cover than anything else uh, for the industry. So, for instance, we've got this International Agreement on Humane Trapping Standards. That is a treaty signed by Canada and other jurisdictions. And one of the things that it led to was the testing of all these different traps on live animals to try to see which ones uh, ostensibly were the most humane or the least cruel. And that's an effort that Canada led, that this, this individual was uh, deeply involved with. And what they did, Peter, is they went and wild captured a whole bunch of different wild animals who they wanted to test on. They put them in a facility with these traps, and then they trapped them, and they watched them die and watched them suffer and try to measure the degree to which... Um, that happens and make recommendations for changes to trap design. So, I mean, that's something I find uh, pretty troubling. I also read an interview with him where he trashes groups like the Fur Bear Defenders as anti-fur 
organizations who he refers to as fanatics. And he's attacked animal rights activists on many occasions. So I find, I guess it just leaves me with a bad taste in my mouth that this is the animal welfare promoter who's receiving the, re- the Order of Ontario. I could dev- think of all kinds of people in this province who've been working in activist groups for decades trying to improve those things, but we don't see any of them getting an award. I think that last point, there's, there's a lot of things you've touched on that I think are important, but I think that last one is one of the most significant. Um, the real... The, 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 just the idea that um, um, animal advocates who are really fighting on behalf of animals are never recognized for that particular fight and are instead uh, decried as, you know, troublemakers or even terrorists, depending on the way in which they, they operate. And I, I, I think that's deeply troubling. I think that, um, um, you know, we can debate whether Neil Jotham should have gotten the Order of Ontario, but I think it's, it's well recognized. It's, it's strange to me, at the very least, that that we just blanket exclude animal advocates who have been there are there are many animal advocates in this country we could list off you know just this one after the other who have done incredible things to raise the profile of animals and yet they are never to my knowledge, considered for these awards. I remember a couple of years ago um, in New Zealand when I was asked to really try to push for an animal advocate um, to to get one of the similar awards, like a companion, you know, sort of a, the Order of Canada, Order of New Zealand. I can't remember exactly what the name. I think it was a royal honor because they're a little bit more royalist in New Zealand. And, like, there were a lot of people who wrote letters of support sort of saying, you know what, it was sort of the long-term idea of we need to sort of make this change Because like everything else, Camille, I think it's fair to say when animal advocates get appointed to the Order of Canada or the Order of Ontario, that will help normalize the type of conduct that they're promoting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And when you're normalizing somebody who spent their life you know, doing something that I accept probably reduced suffering in some way, yet at the same time resulted in, you know, private processes overtaking legal processes and uh, this agreement that I think does more to prop up the fur industry than it does to reduce animal suffering. I find that troubling. So but I just, wanted to note that. Yeah, no, I'm glad you did. Can I just segue into something else? Because we're talking about this normalizing. And I just I just wanted to say, amongst the many other things, Camille, that we've talked about, you know, sometimes we use terms like um, in our lifetime, like this is going to happen in our lifetime and that's going to happen in our lifetime. You know what I mean by that? Like, I I think that... I think that these things are happening and I think it's interesting to note that like when I was when I was appointed a law professor in uh, in New Zealand in 2001 um, there was to my knowledge not a single vegan law professor in North America or New Zealand like there weren't any right and it just it was it wasn't the thing to do I was only vegetarian myself at that time but I mean like the the in, the making inroads into different places and industries I think has really helped to normalize because it essentially makes it part of the culture that you exist in, right? And I think that makes a big change when you realize that these are just people who are advocating for a particular cause. We, we, we are sometimes in our bubble, Camille, when we talk here and obviously the listeners of our show, we forget that out there, veganism is still regarded to a lot of people as an extreme sort of activity or something to be feared. And I think that normalizing that um, in our lifetime is 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 just starting to happen as as vegans become more and more likely to enter into positions of power. And I think we can see that with uh, how many vegans are there in parliament right now, Camille? Because I remember when uh, the first vegan was elected into parliament in the early 2000s. And, and, and I remember that like now that's a different thing. Do you know how many there are? 
I, that's a good question. I don't. I know there's a lot of vegetarians. Okay. I, I thought Nate was vegan, but maybe I'm mistaken. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nate, Nate is Sorry, for Nate sure. Sorry, Nate is that's vegan. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Yeah, yeah. So that's one. Uh, yeah. But I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how many others are. I know there's a lot of people who are vegetarian and meat-reducing, so that's, that's also really good. Yeah, no, I think that's good, too. And I'm just saying that when you start to have those, it's interesting that, like, I mean, Nathaniel's, you know, we could talk about his criminal law policies for why. I, I, I actually think I like him even more for his criminal law policies, Camille, if that's possible. But oh, um, he's just the best in yeah, all ways. But, but, but what I'm saying is I think it's interesting when you can get to the point where it's like any other ism, right? When you get to the point where that's just no longer an issue where it's not really a part of the conversation. We can discuss Nathaniel Erskine-Smith as just the politician, right? And, and it doesn't have to be, oh, he's the vegan politician, right? And I think that's, that's going to happen with judges and politicians and otherwise. I think that's just inevitable. Yeah, the, the wheels of social progress turn slowly sometimes, but normalizing this is a legitimate issue that normal people care about, I think, is part of it, and that is well underway. All right, nice little segue. Well, we should uh, point out really exciting news, Camille, from our friends down in Nova Scotia. And I know, I wish I had the number, but we talked about this on our podcast because I remember we talked about it as a healthy possibility that our very own Nova Scotia was getting a whale sanctuary. Yay! So the awesome team over at the Whale Sanctuary Project has been diligently searching for sites for their proposed sanctuary for years now. They've examined countless sites in British Columbia, Washington State, and Nova Scotia, and they finally found one. So their first proposed site is in Port Hilford, Nova Scotia, which is a couple of hours east of Halifax along Nova Scotia's eastern shore. It's near Sherbrooke and the municipality of St. Mary's. So it's an ideal site for what they want to do, which is to net off a large cove and put a bunch of belugas and potentially dolphins in there who've been rescued from places like Marineland and the Vancouver Aquarium. So the cove that they found in Port Hilford is open to the ocean, but it's also sheltered from storms. It's deep enough to accommodate the whales need to dive deeply. It's, it's large enough that they can swim longer distances by far than they would be able to in a tiny concrete tank. And the Whale Sanctuary Project has plans to build an interpretive center and an educational center on site so people can understand more about these amazing creatures. And one of the coolest things about this and what makes me so excited, Peter, is that they've got really strong support from the provincial government, which is so great to have that institutional support for this initiative. I, I think it's fantastic. And um, I was just trying to look, um, Camille, I couldn't see in the story if you noticed. Is there any, is the timetable to work on this? Has that been set out? They are predicting that they'll open by the end of 2021. That's awfully soon. So I really hope that they are able to because frankly, the whales in places like Marineland right now, they, they can't wait much longer. Uh, Canada banned whale and dolphin captivity last year, as you all know, but that excludes whales who are currently in captivity because they just don't have anywhere to go. So this sanctuary might finally be the solution to the, to the question of what do we do with all these whales who are still stuck in tanks? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I raised the timetable, Camille, is because I want to make a commitment on this show. It seems to me that if you're looking at that timetable, I'm thinking episode 100, Camille. We got to go to the whale sanctuary. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. You think I'm kidding? I am not. I think it is. I think it would be an amazing show. I think it would really help to, you know, we could interview people working at the whale sanctuary and give our own views as to what it's like. I think that is about as good as an episode 100 show as we can come up with. 
Wow, let's do it. I love let's this idea. Let's go to the whale sanctuary. No, I want to. I think it's I think it's a fantastic idea. We'll go to Halifax. We'll go we'll go check out the whale sanctuary. So I'm marking that down. Shannon, are you listening? All We're right. going to the whale sanctuary. Episode episode 100. Oh my Done. god, 50 episodes away. That's a long way. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Our last story is good news in a way, but it's still depressing. So it's a story in The Guardian UK about how nearly 20,000 wildlife farms in China are being shut down in the wake of the coronavirus, which, you know, it's good news. So that's why I say it's good news is because these farms are being sent uh, um, away for a while. But what is bad news, I guess, is and it's not really bad news in that it's new, but I just didn't appreciate the extent to which these wildlife farms were operating in China. There's over 20,000 of them. Uh, raising species like peacocks, civet cats, porcupines, ostriches, wild geese, boars, all kinds of wild animals that that are being raised for human consumption. And it sounds like an incredibly cruel process. Uh, I don't even know where to start. It's a tough one. Um, I've dealt with some China stuff earlier in my career when I went to China for uh, the first animal law conference that was held in that jurisdiction. And I, I'm, I'm good friends with... Uh, um, um, with some of the people who were working out of Hong Kong to work on animal welfare issues. And it's just the wildlife stuff is just brutal. It's just in the markets. I mean, I, I, I really don't know where to start. It's just a terrible, terrible situation. But I, 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 and I think it's, uh, it's always, you know, interesting that it takes a human disease to actually get some. This, this, you know, shutting down of these markets has nothing to do with any concern for the animals. It's simply out of concern that uh, disease is a problem. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, anything that gets to the result, right, Camille? But still not the best. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a few troubling angles to this. I actually tweeted a few weeks ago a, a news story about how Canada goose profits were in decline because people were, people are just, you know, isolating themselves at home in China and there's much less economic activity as a result. So the jackets are being purchased less. And, you know, my comment on is that that is like, does it really take a pandemic for people to, you know, stop participating in this industry? But in, in some ways it does. So what I would love to see as an outcome of this, uh, whole issue around the coronavirus and the fact that it originated in wild animal markets and jumped to humans. I would love to see a discussion of the ethics of eating animals in that way and the ethics of, uh, you know, what we do to them. But I, I'm skeptical that that's going to be are the you, outcome are you holding here, your I think, breath? more than anything. You're not, you're not holding your breath. Oh, I better breath, not or I'll <laughs> suffocate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the more likely outcome is that the government tries to find ways to, quote, unquote, do it better mm. and reduce disease transmission risk rather than looking at the practice in the first place. Usually, usually the way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an unfortunate reality. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's your good news, bad story. Good news, bad news story of the day. And now a quick break to hear about our sponsors before moving into our main segment. Healthy, naturally gluten-free, and ready-to-eat, Kesava creates delicious dishes that are inspired by classic world village foods that your grandma might make. Kesava's dishes are rich with bold flavors, authentic ingredients, and culture and history, but with a modern twist. Kesava has something for everyone, including its own line of 100% plant-based foods that include vegan cheddar-style potato pierogies, vegan sweet potato ravioli, vegan green pea and potato samosas. Kesava's dough is made from the cassava root, which sustained indigenous people in Brazil and Peru for thousands of years. Kesava was inspired by a time when allergies and food sensitivities weren't abundant like they are now, and this led to the creation of its signature dough. 
Quesava's products are always natural with ingredients you can pronounce that are good for you and for the planet. Their foods are perfect for vegetarians, vegans, the health conscious, planet lovers, and those who just like to celebrate life. Their products are made in Vancouver, B.C. Visit the store finder at quesava.com to find a retailer near you and start enjoying delicious Quesava products. For those of you who haven't heard of tempeh, you're missing out. Tempeh is a popular food item in Indonesia that's traditionally made with soy as a staple source of protein. It's versatile, filling, and has a delicious nutty flavor. The folks behind Tempeh are masters of creating great tempeh and have developed a passionate following in Vancouver for many good reasons. Tempeh's products are always fresh and made with organic, non-GMO soybeans. Its tempeh is unpasteurized, meaning it's alive and full of flavor. Tempeh is a superfood with numerous benefits. It's an awesome source of protein. Tempeh's tempeh actually has 1.4 times more protein than firm tofu. Tempeh is also low in saturated fat and totally free of trans fat, cholesterol, and sodium. It's high in fiber and is a source of calcium and iron. If served plain, it's low in FODMAPs too. Tempeh is also naturally gluten-free. Visit tempeh, that's T-E-M-P-E-A dot C-A for delicious tempeh-packed recipes and to find out where tempeh products are offered in the greater Vancouver area. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and abroad. The Grinning Goat is your one-stop shop for everything, including t-shirts for animal advocacy, footwear, accessories, kids' fashion, personal care products, zero-waste products, outerwear, and various items for your home. Vegan shopping has never been easier. Whether you're shopping for yourself or buying gifts for a loved one, you have the comfort of knowing that everything at The Grinning Goat is completely animal-free. And for being a listener of the podcast, you get a special discount code if you shop online at grinninggoat.ca. Simply use the code PAW15 at checkout to save 15% on your entire regular price purchase. And right now, the Grinning Goat is having a big end of winter sale. Nothing makes me happier than end of winter sales. Visit grinninggoat.ca to save up to 50% on select boots, cruelty-free parkas, accessories, and much more. Thank you to our friends at The Grinning Goat for being longtime supporters of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Emma Hurst. She's an Animal Justice Party MP serving in the Upper House of New South Wales Parliament, Australia. Elected in March of last year, Emma has used her time in Parliament to bring animals to the forefront of political discussion, sharing an inquiry into battery cage hens, investigating the failures of state animal welfare legislation, fighting against the oppressive right-to-farm egg gag legislation, and holding a round table into the link between animal abuse and domestic violence. While pursuing a career in politics has been a new step for Emma, she has been officially campaigning on behalf of animals for over 15 years, first working as a campaign director for Animal Liberation and later as media officer at PETA. She traces her passion for animal protection back to childhood when she was cradling a hen. After realizing the hen purred in the same way as her cat, Emma decided she could no longer eat meat and made it her goal to fight on behalf of those who are voiceless, something she continues to pursue to this day. Welcome to the Pod and Order podcast, Emma. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's so great to have you. I've been uh, following your, your work in Australia for quite some time, so it's really wonderful to get a chance to sit down and talk a little bit more about everything you folks have been doing. 
but obviously, oh, before we get to that, I'm, I'm just curious to, and I think our listeners will be curious too, to learn a little bit more about what your life was before politics and the kind of animal protection work that you were doing. So working with Animal, animal Liberation and later with uh, PETA, how did you first start working professionally in the field? Uh, so when I first went vegan, um, I was at university studying education and I kind of knew in the back of my head that education wasn't for me. It wasn't the area that I wanted to specialize in. I decided that I wanted to still complete my degree. So I sort of thought about what I could do, which would also then be useful for animals in the future. And I realized that, you know, most animal cruelty that we're trying to change is a human caused problem. And so I realized that the solution also had to be human based. And so I went into psychology and I did my master's in psychology and I focused in an area of psychology called health psychology, which rather than sort of the typical armchair counseling style psychology most people are used to, it focuses on mass behavior change. So how do we convince entire populations to quit smoking? How do we convince people to wear their seatbelts while driving? So I figured I could use those tools and bring them into animal campaigning to convince entire populations to stop eating animal products or to uh, change their weekend behaviours away from uh, behaviours that involved animal cruelty, like going to a circus um, and choosing more animal-friendly ways to entertain themselves. So I studied... um, Uh, That throughout university, while I also worked at Animal Liberation as the campaign director there for about 10 years, and then moved on to People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, where I worked in media. Um, So I was able to, you know, harness a lot of my campaign skills at Animal Liberation um, and also sort of build up on my media skills while working at People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And then I also worked at World Animal Protection International in campaign mobilization. So that was a real synergy with the psychology work I did because campaign mobilization really is looking at the research of behavior change for animal campaigns. Um, So doing sort of some initial research on the people whose behavior that you want to change Um, working out from that research what a campaign would look like and then reassessing throughout the campaign to see if the behaviour change is actually occurring. Um, And so that was, yeah, that was my life. I mean, I did also work in uh, psychology practice. I worked in drug and alcohol counselling. I worked in um, psychiatric hospitals doing group therapy and I've done child therapy. So I have done a little bit of that, the psychology work as well um, and a bit of research work at universities, but animal protection has always been my passion. Oh, that's super interesting. And I'm sure anyone listening who works professionally in the field or tries to influence others to change their behavior knows or has come to appreciate, and it's not always an obvious thing at the beginning when you first go vegan or first get into animal rights, is that so much of it has to do not just with changing attitudes, but changing behavior. Since when you ask people mm. on the street, they, they tend to agree with, with a lot of animal advocates when we talk about some of the issues and what the solutions need to be, but yet they still consume meat and dairy and egg products. And so much of that has to do more with behavior than the actual attitudes that they hold towards those products. So I'm sure that's been really helpful training for the work you do now. Yeah. And, and, and as you say, like, it's just such a, 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 you know, it's just a common belief. And, and I admit, you know, when I first went vegan, 
my theory was if everybody knew, then everything would change. And education's a big piece of the work we do in protecting animals, um, but it's not the only piece. And I think that there's a lot of burnout and a lot of frustration from activists that come in with the attitude of, you know, well, once I found out I changed my behaviour, but we've got to realise that we are the anomaly, we're not the norm. And we've got to realise that education is, will, will get us to a certain, like a certain stage, but, you know, then, then there needs to be behaviour change techniques as well um, to ensure that people who have changed their mind also change their behaviours. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I read while I was researching for this interview, Emma, that while you were working uh, prior to entering politics, that you were involved in a number of complaints with the Australia Competition and Consumer Commission uh, regarding Mm -hmm. false advertising about animal uh, products that are being sold for sale, particularly, I think, some duck farms and some chicken farms, maybe. Could you fill us in on that a little bit? Yeah, I was actually writing a report for animal liberation um, around the duck farming industry. There wasn't much information publicly available in Australia around how ducks were being farmed. And one of the major duck producers here in Australia, um, I was looking at their website and looking at their advertising, and I noticed that on their advertising they described their farming system as open range. And of course, these ducks were inside windowless dark sheds with no access to surface water and no access to the outside world. And so I contacted a barrister and I got his thoughts around it. And he said, as a case to the ACCC, we needed to be able to give them as much evidence as possible to show that there are a large number of consumers that are being misled and misguided by these advertising of markets all around Australia. So we focused on every state and territory. And we also made sure we've got a range of supermarkets which they sold through. So we, um, in Australia, we've got Coles and Woolworths and a couple of smaller ones. And so we made sure to show how widespread this was and how many people it would be causing confusion for. Um, And the barrister put together an advice as well. And we handed this over as one full package to the ACCC, who then took the company to court, who agreed with us that this was false and misleading advertising. And uh, Pepe's Ducks was uh, sued successfully for about half a million dollars. And of course, then there was a follow on of a huge amount of media where we were able to talk about the issues also with not providing ducks with surface water, being a semi-aquatic animal. And there was a lot of footage of what life was really like for these ducks inside the sheds. And interestingly from that, there was an interview, I did a radio interview and following on from me, they interviewed a different duck company, which was the second largest duck farming producer in Australia. And their interview, they said, oh, yes, that's Pepe's Ducks. They they are misleading their consumers, but we are not misleading consumers with our advertising. So I had a little closer look at their advertising claims, and I noticed that they had a sentence which said, grown and grain-fed in the spacious Wimmera weedlands. And so we did the same thing again. (laughs) Uh, because we figured that 
to have the word spacious, I mean, they were referring, well, their argument was that they were referring to the Wimmera wheatlands as being spacious, but why would you need to use that word spacious on the packaging of a duck? So that was also taken to court and they were also successfully sued. Um, so that was, yeah, two really successful cases that, that we did with the ACCC. Um, and, and there was some flow-on effects for both of those companies as well. They had to have on their websites that they were found guilty of misleading and deceptive conduct. Uh, we had some local groups as well that uh, around some local markets and stuff where these products were being sold. Um, so I shouldn't refer to animals as products, but where these companies were selling their ducks. And... Um, yeah, that, the, and so they were able to have petitions and local newspaper stories demanding that they be removed from the markets because they were deceptive and, and they were really successful campaigns as well. So it had a real flow-on effect as well. Well, it's important work and it, it was a bit of an inspiration actually to us here in Canada. We've filed a number of those complaints to our competition uh, bureau, which does the same thing as the HFLC, but uh, so far they haven't been quite as interested in taking action, but I have hopes that that will change. But why don't we move on to your political career? I'm, I'm curious to know more about first the Animal Justice Party in general and the impact it's made on Australian politics in just a short time, and also why you decided to run. What was it that inspired you to uh, cross over from the advocacy side of things to becoming a politician? So the Animal Justice Party started in 2009 and it's loosely modelled on the Party for Animals in the Netherlands after we saw the success that that party was having overseas. It started because we've got a party here in Australia called the Greens and they do some great work around human rights and environmental law, but they really fell short when it came to animal protection law. So it was almost a breakaway group that wanted to ensure that animal protection law was really being debated in Parliament. So it started in 2009 and in the first ever New South Wales election, when the party was still very brand new, we had one member elected into the state, which is uh, my colleague, Mark Pearson. And I mean, that's almost unheard of that a political party could just start so new and get somebody elected so quickly. And then in the second ever election in Victoria, we had Andy. And then in the second New South Wales election, myself, I was elected. And so I'm the first woman representing the Animal Justice Party in Parliament. So there's now three of us as MPs in the Animal Justice Party throughout Australia. That's amazing. So we're one of the fastest... Yes, it's, it's really good. It's fantastic. Um, I think that some of the other conservative parties were hoping that Mark was a one-hit wonder and we would sort of disappear after that. But um, the fact that we've just gone from strength to strength has really made them realise that, you know, people are using their vote to get animals and, and to get the issues for animals in Parliament. And, you know, the people that vote for the Animal Justice Party have the same issues as everybody else, that, you know, their taxes are too high, you know, there's not, um, you know, they're looking for better health care. Um, they've got the same issues as everybody else, but they're using their vote um, because they realise that the issue of animal protection is so far behind that, that it's just so important to get people in there representing animals. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I feel your frustration too, working with traditional mainstream parties. I've, I myself spent a number of years working with the Greens and, you know, there, there's a lot mm-hmm. of good that comes out of uh, the Green Party in Canada and its animal policies. It's easily the most progressive one elected in parliament, but it's still frustrating that uh, they often don't go as far as I think they need to be. So I can certainly appreciate the, the desire to start something that will reflect those desires of all those people who care. Absolutely. And and I guess for us, you know, it was twofold. There was a couple of areas where the Greens um, were quite different in their position on animals, um, particularly non-native animals and the treatment of those animals is, is a big area where we differentiate on our uh, thoughts on how to best deal with those situations. Um, but also just the, the time and attention, considering we're so far behind on animal issues, then, you know, it's almost... Well, it's ideal to have a party that can focus on animal protection in its entirety because it is one of those social movements that is so far behind everyone else. So being able to focus almost entirely on animals, you know, really allows us to give them that platform in Parliament. Yeah, it's a fantastic luxury. And what was it, Emma, that inspired you personally to step forward and put your name on the ballot? So I had been working in animal protection for many years by that point. And I guess for me, I really needed to work out where I am best placed for animals. Um, And when I looked at where we and how far we had come on animal protection, I saw that, especially in Australia, we've seen a lot of individual change. Australia's, I think, the third fastest vegan growing market in the world we're seeing massive changes. We're seeing really successful campaigns in encouraging people to change their behaviours. We're also seeing some really successful corporate campaigns, especially with groups like Animals Australia that has worked very closely with various corporations to, for example, eliminate caged eggs from within their products, um, to get them off the shelves in supermarkets, to encourage uh, different chains like burger chains to have vegan options. So we're, and just to have, you know, more ethical policies within airlines, et cetera. So we're seeing constant change in those two areas. But I see progressive change for animals as being individual, corporate and law. And we need all three to see real progress for animals. And where we're seeing progress in those two areas, we're really behind on animal protection law. In Australia, we've got some of the worst animal protection laws in the world. We still allow the use of animals in circuses. We live export animals uh, for, you know, enormous, um, enormous number of kilometres overseas where, you know, they suffer um, unimaginably on site, inside these ships. We have uh, some of the worst agricultural gagging laws in the world as well. So our laws are in a very different place to where our society is. And so I knew that it was really starting at the very bottom of the hill. Um, To be able to sort of put myself there, it was going to be a really big and difficult challenge. But I, I also come in with the luxury of having two other MPs in the Animal Justice Party before me. But I think it was just something that, I thought we need so much more done in this area. So, so that's why I ended up deciding to run. Um, my colleague, Mark Pearson, who was the first uh, member elected, actually worked with me for many years at Animal Liberation. So we already had worked together and we knew how well we worked together. And he had, had approached me and asked me to run. 
And I just thought, yes, I think that this could work. I think that we would work well as a team working forward on this. Well, I'm sure the animals are happy that that worked out. <laughs> Congratulations on, on being elected. So yes. I, I'd, <laughs> I'd love you. to hear more about some of the work that you've uh, done in office. And why don't we start with egg gig since you brought that up. We're actually struggling with egg gig recently ourselves in Canada since mm. November, the first bill passed. And now there's uh, pending legislation in uh, two other provinces, the federal level, and there's probably three more provinces that I've heard whispers where they're following suit. And from looking at your right to farm bill, which I think is the New South Wales version of, of AGAG, uh, it looks like Canada has unfortunately followed a lot of mm. what uh, you folks have been fighting against down there. So do you want to just sort of describe what led up to the AGAG laws in New South Wales and what the state of the law is now? Yeah, so these are just really draconian laws, which essentially make it very, very difficult to expose animal cruelty. And they come from a place, and look, in Australia, we've got, we've had some huge exposés of animal cruelty in the agriculture industry. And I think it's come from lobbying from within industry to stop those exposés from happening in the first place. And so we're now looking at fines of up to $220,000 for trespassing to expose animal cruelty, um, plus possible jail time. And the best way to sort of expose um, where the priorities of this current government is in Australia, or particularly in New South Wales, is that our maximum penalty for animal cruelty is $5,500. So the person that exposes the animal cruelty is looking at 220,000, but the person who committed the act of cruelty could be looking at a maximum of $5,500. So it's it's really quite disgusting. It's really quite frustrating. Um, These laws only came in last year. Um, Interestingly, they also target illegal hunters. And my understanding, I actually asked the agriculture minister yesterday Um, what was happening with these laws and at the moment there's a group of hunters that are um, currently being uh, tested in court under these new laws um, as well as a couple of activists as well so we're yet to see what the courts will do with them um, but we're hoping we will follow suit with uh, states in in um, the US that have found them to be unjust laws. Oh, I'm glad to hear that there's some form of potential legal challenge under the way. We're we're definitely contemplating the same in Canada. And it's interesting, too, about the hunters. I I could almost see hunting lobby organizations pushing for that uh, if if they see the state going after so-called illegal hunting or poaching or whatever you want to call it. It almost legitimizes the so-called legal hunters in an additional way, which is kind of a sneaky way to, you know, ingratiate themselves in a way to politicians and and try to make it look to the public like the state's cracking down in some way on hunting when really it's not sort of it it was we actually had a really interesting situation when the um so we've got a party unfortunately in new south wales and i kid you not the name of the party is the shooters fishers and farmers party oh and Yeah. (laughs) So they've been around for a long time and they actually were pushing for these uh, gag laws very strongly. And when we were debating the legislation, I got up and I said, look, we actually support the tougher penalties on illegal hunting, but we don't think we should have the tougher penalties for 
people who are genuinely concerned about animal welfare and are trying to expose animal cruelty. I mean, our laws now target whistleblowers as well. I tried to get an amendment up as well that would see protection for workers that were genuine whistleblowers, um, but they voted that down. But the um, one of the members of the Shooters Party, when I was um, debating that it would be fine to target these laws towards hunters, he said, oh, no, that's not in the legislation. And I said, well, it is. It's at this this section. And he said, no, it's not. Oh. <laughs> and it really actually became <laughs> he, he hadn't even read it um, and he didn't actually understand what he was about to vote in because um, the government had been very quiet about the fact that this also targeted hunters um, and they wouldn't address it. They didn't mention it. It was written in there, but I realised that, I don't think he actually understood that and I don't think he knew that. And so I think that when they voted in this ag-gag legislation, they didn't realise that they were also targeting um, many of their own constituents. So it was a bit of a bizarre one. Um, but I'm glad to see that some hunters are being prosecuted under it. Well, well, that's a great story. And I, I'm glad they didn't do their homework on this one. That certainly helps uh, you folks with the jobs you're trying to do. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about the egg egg, but I do hope that the courts will have something to say about it. But you've also been working on uh, farming issues in another way, which was uh, a parliamentary inquiry into battery cages in the farming system. Do you want to fill us in on that? So the use of battery cages was one of our election promises that we would work if I got elected and we did a parliamentary inquiry which I chaired and it's interesting because the government voted against the inquiry from taking place because they said there wasn't any public interest in the issue. Normally when an inquiry takes place there's about 100 to 150 submissions from the public on a fairly topical issue. We got over 20,000 submissions from the public demanding an end to battery cages. So it was wow. very, very clear that the community wanted to see a change, yes. Um, and, you know, it was very clear cut, it, listening to experts, listening to welfare groups, every single one of them was saying that this is, a, you know, the cruelest industry. And, you know, it all it ranged from, you know, the entire egg industry is cruel to, battery cages are the most cruel system and we need to at least and at a minimum get rid of those. Um, in the end, it was a very interesting, I had the numbers to get a, a really good report up and we did get a couple of good things out of it. One of those was um, a recommendation for an independent office. It became, the only um, The only people that were pushing to keep battery cages was the industry and the Department of Primary Industries, which is part of the government. And it was clear that that section of the government, so with animals falling under the agriculture minister and these laws falling under the agriculture minister, that they had a conflict of interest if they were going to listen to industry and ignore all the science, all the welfare and all the community groups. Um, so we recommended an independent office of animal welfare away from the Minister for Agriculture where there was this clear conflict of interest. The other good recommendation that came out of it was that there should be better and stronger labelling laws around the use of caged eggs within products. So something that came out really strongly was that the majority of, because at the moment most uh, eggs are still coming from the caged egg system throughout Australia. And that's despite the fact that most consumers won't buy caged eggs anymore and the major supermarkets have phased them out. And that's because 
caged eggs are being hidden within products like mayonnaise and cakes where people who would otherwise ethically make the decision not to buy caged eggs are unknowingly buying caged eggs. So we had a recommendation that any product that contains caged eggs should also be labelled as, as containing caged eggs so that consumers can make a, a more ethical decision. However, despite the fact that we had the numbers for a recommendation for a full um, and time-based phase-out of battery cages in the egg industry, about two minutes before our deliberative meeting, uh, Labor Party, who is the non-government party, uh, backflipped on the issue and they voted for what could potentially be even more damaging than allowing battery cages con to continue. So we had a really bizarre situation where um, the lobby groups and the industry groups were saying, we don't need to get rid of battery cages because we're phasing them out anyway and we're going to move to furnished cages which have been used overseas. So a lot of countries that have actually got rid of the battery cage have moved to these things that they call furnished cages. And the same thing happened in New Zealand. Um, however, the farmers in New Zealand who then invested. So these furnished cages are just larger cages with a perch and a scratching pad, um, which uh, it suggested that it might be slightly better welfare, but I think it's just a way to sort of cling on to this idea of not removing cages. But the farmers in New Zealand actually wrote to Australian farmers and warned them and said, you will invest billions of dollars for this new infrastructure. But the campaigns have been so successful and anybody that's saying that they won't sell or, or use caged eggs still won't use caged eggs from a furnished cage. So there's no new market for us. And so it's a complete waste of money to move to the furnished caged industry. So when the industry here was saying, oh, we're getting rid of battery cages and we're moving to these furnished cages, uh, it was sort of alarm bells for us. And when we looked at their proposal, what they were proposing was to keep the battery cages as the same size and change the name of them to furnish cages and to maybe add in a little bit of straw or substrate or something and to just essentially just change the name so that consumers thought that battery cages, so they could announce that battery cages had been phased out and eliminated, but essentially they were just lying to consumers to make them think that something was changing. when. In fact, if they added a perch or substrate or anything into what the existing battery cages is, it could actually reduce the welfare of the animals because at the moment they can't take a step forward or back or turn around. And if you added anything to one of those cages, the welfare would be even worse for, for many of these animals. So for the two major parties to support that was, was actually a really low point uh, of 2019, I'm, I'm sad to say. But on the, on the upside, we know what the industry is planning to do and um, we will hold them to account of that and expose them if they do. Well, more evidence that the industry is completely shameless. I've, I've got to say, I'm not surprised to hear that, mm. although it's always disappointing. Uh, I, I think they would be wise to see the writing on the wall and look at global trends and see where this is going. And instead of fighting to hold on to cages, just move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But is there any, uh, what's the effect yeah. of uh, the report from the inquiry now? Is, is there any obligation on the government to act on any of the recommendations? 
So we, the government has to respond to our report um, and that's been tabled with them. But And I think that they're responding in the next few weeks. It's in my diary, but I haven't. I did prod the minister yesterday in budget estimates around what he thought about the labelling laws, um, but he said that they're still going through and, and providing their response to the report. Oh, and are there any labelling laws at the moment that require disclosure of any particular information on uh, at least some products? In Canada, we've got nothing uh, on the books in terms of laws. It's just basically voluntary terms that companies use. Oh, no. In in, um, in Australia, so a caged egg needs to be labelled as caged on the carton. Um, so I guess that's what we're flowing on from, that if you have to label on a carton of eggs if it's caged, then you should also have to label if your product contains caged eggs. Uh, so we do have that at least. Oh, okay, okay, that's something. Well, okay, well, I want to move on to another topic uh, then, which is in the context with which you and I first got in touch was uh, regarding discussions around outlawing whale and dolphin captivity potentially in, in your jurisdiction, because as you know, Canada managed to take that uh, step last year and outlawed whale and dolphin captivity across yeah. the country. And I think you also might be working on the use of animals in circuses in New South Wales. So how is that been going? Yeah, and congratulations on the outlawing of, of whales and dolphins in captivity. And obviously that was a big thing for us to spur us into that direction. So we've got in New South Wales, we've got one dolphinarium left and then we've got a major dolphinarium up in Queensland, which is another state. And they're the last two in the country. And we have one travelling circus with um, exotic animals as well. So we've put up an inquiry into the continued use of these animals for so-called entertainment. And so we've opened up for submissions in that inquiry. Um, we've had thousands of submissions again. It just seems that every time we put up something that's animal related, the community gets involved with Parliament. So I think we've had between about 6,000 and 8,000 submissions. Um, I'm about one third of the way through reading them. I've, we've actually received quite a few submissions from Canada and from people in Canada, including um, people who were involved in the campaign to have it outlawed in Canada. Um, we've also had submissions from a dolphin trainer in, in Canada who had changed his mind and had felt that um, we need to ban the breeding and the continued use of these animals. So the inquiry will look at um, and consider whether or not we need to ban the continued breeding of these animals in captivity. We want to make sure that we don't have more animals being bred because then you've got another 50 or 60 years before we can reconsider and end to the use of, of animals in these entertainment industries. Um, and we're also considering building a sea pen as well. So the dolphinarium in New South Wales has said that they are open to retiring the dolphins into a sea pen. So we will be looking further into that as well. So we've closed our submissions, but um, we haven't had any hearing or site visits yet, but they're coming in the next couple of months. And so fingers crossed we can get some really progressive uh, recommendations to government on that area as well. Well, that's, that's amazing. And it's, I think, really reflective of uh, the global push right now and the global trend towards simply just doing away with this captivity. And I'm happy to hear about the potential sanctuary or sea pen too, which I wasn't aware of already. Uh, but the a group 
working in Canada called the Whale Sanctuary Project actually just announced last week that they'd selected a site in Canada for our first sanctuary, hopefully with some beluga whales. So uh, yeah, I hope to see that in Australia too. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, because I know this is going to be a question on our listeners' minds. Uh, Everyone in Canada has been so deeply affected by watching uh, media and footage and images from the wildfires in Australia. And I'm, I'm curious to know what the state is of the fires. Have they started to die down? What do you think the lasting impact will be? And what work are you able to do in Parliament to address them? Yeah, well, uh, you know, our, our state and the Victorian state was absolutely devastated by the bushfires. We lost conservative estimates are over a billion animals have died in those fires, and that includes native and non-native animals, farmed animals, um, and even some domestic animals as well. And, you know, the, so the fires have gone but and the rains have come, but with those rains comes further problems. So now that there is, uh, you know, such a huge amount of rain, what we're finding is there's this huge amounts of ash from the fires and the rain combined going into our water systems and the ash is taking the oxygen out of the ocean and we're having mass fish kills where the fishes in those rivers are just dying on mass because of the loss of oxygen within the rivers. So the issues are far from over, even though the fires have stopped burning. Um, We've had a really frustrating time. We've been working with wildlife carers. Um, We did a big fundraiser for a lot of the wildlife carers because there's just simply not enough money going to people on the ground who are taking on the care and rehabilitation of many of these animals. Um, And we've started some campaigns against the government because there's so much that needed to be done that wasn't done. Um, We've got things called right to harm permits, which is a permit to kill native animals, um, which are handed out to people on farming properties, for example. And we asked for an urgent moratorium on these, um, which have been rejected. Um, And and I mean, just to give you an example, I went and visited a town called Albury um, down south of New South Wales, where a golf course had been given a permit prior to the fires to shoot 150 cockatoos, which the golfers had considered to be a nuisance. Now, that permit should have, I mean, from our perspective, it should never have been uh, granted in the first place. But certainly after these fires, the local community was just outraged to have 150 native birds shot from the skies Um, after we'd just lost over a billion animals and we have no idea how many we have left. Um, The other thing that the government did, which was just absolutely shocking and disgusted us, was in response to the fires, they decided to drop 1080 poison and do major aerial shooting of non-native animals. Now, we also don't know how many non-native animals died Um, and we don't know what the effects or the ongoing problems of of who and what is left and what the numbers of any of these animals are. So this was just a real knee-jerk reaction. And, of course, I don't think you guys have 1080 poison where you are, but essentially it's 
an indiscriminate poison which causes the pain and suffering of an animal for up to four days before they die. And there's no antidote. If, if a person has it, they die as well, and, and, or a domestic cat or dog. I actually um, learned about it uh, last fall. I was in Australia, uh, sorry, not Australia, New Zealand for the first time where it's used there as well and learned about the controversy around it and its use. And I think one thing that Canadians don't really appreciate is is in Australia, New Zealand, the... Um, the very strong desire among some some segments of society to completely obliterate any non-native wildlife from from the entire country. Oh, absolutely, and it's and it's pushed very heavily here by the Greens, and you know that's where I said that that's one area where we very strongly divide. Um, it's 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 really quite bizarre. I mean, we've got so many non-native animals in Australia. I mean, we've got things like uh, animals like dingoes have been here for 4,000 years. Now, to eliminate dingoes from Australia is absurd, but we know that 1080 poison will be killing those dingoes. And in fact, some of the documents that we've been receiving um, have just referred to the dingoes as wild dogs. And we've had scientists and experts actually email in um, all the MPs in government and begging us not to uh, continue to use 1080 poison on dingoes because not just the pain and suffering it causes, but because, you know, when an animal's been in a country for 4,000 years, you know, at what point do you consider them a native animal? Um, but it's just, I mean, it, all of it is just absurd. Um, I mean, we do support the use of immunocontraceptives on certain species of animals in certain areas if they're causing major dis, dis, um, destruction. Um, but, but these sort of poisoning programs are just irresponsible and, and unscientific. Oh, absolutely. And, and especially mm. heartbreaking in the wake of the virtual apocalypse you've just described. It's, it's really the number of billion animals. It's hard to even conceive what that means. All, all you know is that it's a heartbreaking situation. So I guess my last question for you, Emma, is <laughs> in the face of all of these uh, problems that you run up against and the work that you're trying to do and the opposition from the other parties who should be trying to do the right thing but instead seem more interested in appeasing industries how do you stay positive and connected to the animals when you try to do this work question um i think i mean look i've got my own team here so there's myself and um two others um and then obviously mark and then he's got his team of two and then we've got our state office um, of three further people. So we all work closely together. Um, I'm really quite inspired by people within the community. So when I feel quite burnt out, what I find is, you know, when I go out and reach out to the community and do work with them, I feel quite re-energised. So at the end of last year, I went up to Queensland and we did some protests outside SeaWorld around the use of the captive dolphins. And that really re-energised me to realise that, you know, it, it, we're not on our own, that there's so many of us fighting for animals. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we had an interesting incident actually last week. Three baboons escaped from a medical experimentation facility. Um, and this happened in the inner city sort of areas. So people were quite shocked. And it really reminded Australians that primates are still being used in medical research here. This was something that we really struggled to get the media to focus on because there was no there was no images and nobody knew any information about what was going on because it's such a hidden industry. 
And that happened on Tuesday. And I contacted a few groups and said, look, let's run a protest on Sunday. And hundreds of people showed up with their own signs. We did a silent vigil outside the hospital. Um, numerous uh, media crews showed up to, to um, talk about why we were there. And, you know, in the heart, in the, in the heart of something that was really quite awful, um, that these animals had made an attempt to flee from medical experimentation, um, came so much awareness and now we're able to work with these groups to work out the next steps and we've got a campaign to free Alfred and his two female companions from the medical experimentation facility and, and it's getting enormous amount of media coverage. So when you see campaigns like that coming out of what we do and you being able to use our platform for being in parliament to continue to keep these issues on the agenda, um, that, I think that's what keeps me going and realising that that's our job. We're sort of starting at the bottom and we may not necessarily win in regards to getting legislation passed, but we're certainly getting a lot more information into the public eye um, and the community is responding with a lot of positivity and a lot of compassion towards animals. And I think that that's, um, you know, it's just so important for us to be able to be able to do that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's always a dialogue between uh, people and their attitudes and what they want to see and then what politicians are doing in parliament, lawyers are doing in the court. Uh, the more you just bring these efforts to the forefront, the more it reminds people that there's a problem and the more they ask for change. So it's all cumulative and just so appreciative of the work that you're doing and so amazed by everything that you folks have managed to get on the agenda. So Emma, thank you very much for joining us on Paw and Order. It was great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Heroes and Zeros. All right, Peter, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Everybody, oh yeah, it's everybody's favorite segment, Camille, Heroes and Zeros. Okay, our hero of this episode is a website and a Twitter account for Factory Farm Collective. So this is sort of a newish website, and they do a really great job of explaining some issues via Twitter. But it's a website and account with excellent factual information, including photos and really, really well done writing that explains various aspects of Canadian farming practices. So the authors of this website and the Twitter account, they really dive into subsidies, they dive into different practices of slaughter. Um, they dive into farm organizations infiltrating the public school system and uh, ins inserting propaganda into kids' minds from an early age about the importance of farming practices and saying stuff against animal rights activists. Uh, I'm just really impressed with the depth of research on this website and Twitter accounts and the way that they explain these issues. It's extremely well done. Check out factoryfarmcollective.ca and twitter.com slash factoryfarmclv. I think you'll really benefit from reading some of the information they present. And I just wanted to give them a shout out because I think they're awesome. Awesome. I haven't had a chance. You've told me about it and I've been just too busy recently to go look, but now I'm going to. And on top of that, I'm sure they'll be thrilled, Camille, that we are sending our legions of fans, the <laughs> legions of people who are listening to our show. They are going to... Listen, Factory Farm Collective, I'm just warning you, like you better bolster your your internet bandwidth because you, we might crash your site when the legions of Paw and Order fans come and descend on you. Watch out. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, God, R-Zero today. In defense 
I believe, Camille, unless I misread this, this is, uh, boy, this is ag gag all over again. Ontario Agricultural Minister Ernie Hardiman has written an op-ed. Ernie, good job. You're writing an op-ed in the Hamilton Spectator. And this is, of course, in defense of the government's ag-ag legislation. And it is defending for why, Ernie says, why you don't need to worry about ag-ag legislation because we've got the matter well in hand. And here's what Ernie has to say. Well, I'm going to read the second part first, Camille, because I think it's the funny. So our government has passed tough new legislation, the Provincial Animal Services Welfare Act, which is true, Camille. We actually, we, we, we've given a thumbs up to that legislation. Fair to say? Yeah, tentative thumbs up. It's going in the right direction. So they say, Ernie goes on to say, that our province is hiring 100 animal welfare inspectives, some of them, some of them specialized in livestock and horses. Phew, Camille, whew. You know, I feel better about ag-ag law already, Camille, because I what know a relief. there are 100 animal welfare inspectors out there, so, some of them, Camille, specialized in livestock and horses. I mean, whew, now I know that Ontario's farms are going to be policed regularly. And wait, Ernie goes on to say, these are the people best suited to protect the welfare of farm animals in Ontario. I, I got it all wrong. Camille, I am withdrawing my objection to ag-ag legislation because now I know that the government's, you know, there's, so, there's just a SWAT team out there regularly policing and enforcing and just keeping an eye on everything that's going on on farms. And the good news is there are no exemptions in the, the Provincial Animal Services Welfare Act that allow, oh, wait a minute, there are, right? <laughs> that allow farm animals Uh-oh. to be treated in terrible ways. Yes, I forgot. Sorry, my mistake. I mean, crazy me. When I was reading this, Camille, I was so swept up in what was going on that, um, you know, the excitement of the hundred animal welfare inspectors, some of whom, Camille, will be specialized in livestock and horses, <laughs> given that I expect like 20 of those will be in Toronto, um, 20 of those hundred, because that's, how, I mean, geez, 30? Toronto's huge. I mean, I, I'm imagining how many are going to be specialized in livestock and horses, but but I imagine those 12 to 15 inspectors will be doing a good job looking after the hundreds of millions of animals in Ontario so that we don't have to worry anymore. Yeah, yeah, we, we should all be fine. But, um, but, but that's know. not even the best part, right, Camille? Just don't read the best no. part. I want to say the best part. I'll let you, right. you comment. You can say the best, say the best you, part. You, you go ahead. I'll save my comments till the end. Okay, so Ernie goes on. I've, I've left the best part for last because Ernie goes on to make it clear that not only should we not worry because we've got the crack team going in, right, Camille? We, I, I feel so much better now because personally, I was worried that abuse of animals was common. But Ernie tells me that's not so because on-farm animal abuse is a rare occurrence in Ontario. Now, Camille, unless I'm mistaken, I think the next line was written by the Dairy Farmers of Canada because it seems to come right out of that series of tweets that they've recently been posting. Our farmers care deeply about the animals they raise. And I think the op-ed, Camille, had a picture of a cow rubbing its face against a brush, which is just, it's so cute. Um, And our province has laws to protect these animals. Happy day! It's all good. Our government has zero tolerance towards animal abuse, and there's no place for it in Ontario. You know, what Ernie forgot, Camille, was the little asterisks 
that says, we, of course, will define what animal abuse actually is. So we have zero tolerance towards animal abuse. But keep in mind that everything you see um, in all these videos that used to be coming out before AGAG, um, those are not actually animal abuse. So don't be alarmed. Yeah, no, everything's fine. It's all good. We've got the situation under control. Look away, avert your eyes. Don't worry about what's going on over here. We care about the animals. Nothing. I don't know. To see I'm here. not feeling particularly comforted by his assertions, <sighs> uh, as you point out. He so he says our province has laws to protect those animals, meaning those animals that we raise for food. I mean. We don't really. We just really don't. There's a massive exemption that you could drive a dump truck through that says if you're engaged in a reasonable and generally accepted practice in relation to farming animals, the general prohibition against causing distress just doesn't apply. So that's kind of the situation for farmed animals. And he says that on-farm animal abuse is a rare occurrence. I mean... I don't know how anyone can claim that. I, you know, honestly, I, I can't really claim the opposite because we don't have solid evidence either way because no one is inspecting or overseeing these farms from the government. All we've got is some industry people kind of doing their own thing and making up the rules as they go. But it's not like we have data that he can rely on to to, make, to back up that claim. I, what we I do just, see... I love these claims. Is every time, I love them. Yeah, they're, they're great. I mean, but what we do see is that every time somebody goes on to a farm, like whether somebody trespasses onto a farm, whether someone's there uh, because they are an employee of a farm and they witness some things that are problematic, like we see farmed animals suffering regularly. So I don't know how we can say it's a rare occurrence. Well, I mean, I just like I love it. Right. It's just like it's hilarious stuff because it's like it's just such a ridiculous statement on farm animal abuse. Well, first of all, if we were to question Ernie, he would have a definition of animal abuse that I'm guessing would look a lot like what happened at Chilliwack Dairy Farm, where they're actually beating the animals. And like, you know, I'm not even prepared to concede that that's a rare occurrence, but I certainly think it's a rarer occurrence than the types of regular what i would consider to be abuse goes on at every farm all the time but those are just accepted as standard practices in the industry and it's like so yeah but but the claim itself is just ludicrous it's sort of like i remember i i have to i think i have to add a new chapter to the book i'm probably never going to finish camille because i like the chapter about the rogue which you know you know the rogue who who goes rogue and whenever our animal abuse takes place that rare occurrence it's a rogue but i also the other one what i want to have a new chapter camille i'll call it the grand claim the grand claim on-farm animal abuse is a rare occurrence you want to know another one of these like my favorites like hunters quickly kill the animals that they're 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 stalking and preying upon right it's always these like these grand claims that it's like if i were to say in my house that when my kids were one to three it was like i never disciplined them it was a rare occurrence like the claim is idiotic because A, it's impossible to measure and B, it's in my case actually false. My kids were nightmares at that age and I was disciplining them all the time. But I mean, it's just the grand claim is great. I love the grand claim. I remember another example is the seal hunt. It's done in the most humane manner. Like, what, what are these claims? They're, they're, they're empirically unverifiable and the content of them is completely meaningless because we have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, no, it's true. They're just designed to appease people. And for someone who's got a bit of a doubt in the back of their mind, they hear that and they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess we don't have to worry about it. But they don't represent reality at all. So you just summed up my animal law class from last week, Camille. 
I said, like, what are these codes actually designed to do? I mean, they have a few other functions. I don't want to get into codes. We've done a whole show on them. But I do want to say, but one of them things, the main thing I think they're designed to do is make people feel better. Like, that's what it is. Like, oh, Ernie. Thank God I was worried about on-farm animal abuse. I was on the fence about this ag gag, but now it's a rare occurrence. And like, who would know better than the agricultural minister? Well, and don't worry, Peter, because they've set up a hotline. You oh, can the- dial one eight three three nine animals. I love. So I love. We should love, all feel very safe. Can we, can we just like like thank you for bringing that up, Camille? That almost escaped my attention. Let's just let's just. I want everybody to realize the idiocy of what he's doing. Like, there's a hotline at the same time when he's talking about in an op-ed about why we need an ag-gag law that prohibits you from going on farms. So it's like, fantastic. Every farm blocks itself off and creates a closed system that no one can get into because of the way the law has been set up. But if you suspect anything, call the hotline. And by the way, Camille, on that note, I've noted that um, the um, Securities Commission also has a hotline, which is restricted to, you know, any securities abuse that I'll never see because I'm not actually privy to what's going on behind closed doors and offices. Like, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, yeah, first of all, people can't monitor these conditions because they are happening behind closed doors. Uh, but, you know, second is typically that when people call and report animal abuse, if it's suspected but hasn't been witnessed firsthand, the inspectors won't even take that complaint seriously. They uh-huh. just won't investigate it. That's right. It wasn't so, witnessed. I don't know how far that hotline's going to take us if no one can witness this in the first place. Well, that's right, because you can't, because any any fraudulent attempt to get on a farm is also going to be a crime. What we need, Camille, is as soon as these animals can start making the calls themselves, we'll be in business. Because at that point, all bets are off. Well, maybe technology will one day get there. We're getting there, Camille. Fantastic. On that happy note, we really have to do the zero first. We really, we really, I'm I'm getting worried about ending these shows on such a depressing note because that one was, woof, quite a (laughs) winner. So let's just, um, you know, very briefly say, have a great day, Camille. I I want you to be happy and smile. And I'm going to go off smiling after, you know, thinking about Ernie Hardiman. And, uh, you know, go try out some of the products of our new sponsors. That's the rest of my day. All right. You enjoy, Peter. Until next time. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!